If you stand for the reading of God's Word, you have, I, I've made a switch. It's one of the reasons I don't like outlines like this, because I have to, if I were a legalist, I'd have to follow it. But we're looking at a different passage than the Matthew passage. Therefore, you don't have to look at the wall. There's nothing up there, right? Deuteronomy 5, you shall not steal. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I'm not going to read the whole passage. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Over to verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment, this benefits you. Over in chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He, supply, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission following from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And with that, we finish the reading of God's word. And you may sit down as we are reminded of Lord's Day 46, 42 from the Catechism. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? Well, God forbids not only such theft and robbery as are punished by the government, but God views as theft also all wicked tricks and devices whereby we seek to get our neighbor's goods, whether by force or by deceit, such as unjust weights, lengths, measures, goods, coins, usury, or by any means forbidden of God, also all covetousness and the misuse and waste of his gifts. But what does God require of you in this commandment? That I further by 
my neighbor's good where I can and may deal with him as I would have others deal with me and labor faithfully so that I may be able to help the poor in their need. One of the things the law does to us is it drives us to grace. That's the beauty of the law. It drives us to God's grace that is found in two ways. One, it's a grace that forgives. Because as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, one of the things we naturally realize is we can't even keep up them for a second. If you really look at them and you go as deep as Jesus drives us into those commandments, you say, even when I think I've kept it, I probably haven't kept it because there's something in me that is wrong. And therefore, we have to go back to the grace of God. Whenever we definitely fail and we know it, we go back to his grace because out of his grace, we have forgiveness. We have renewal. We have new life. And as I've said before, one of the things we definitely need in order to even think about or keep the commandments is to be recreated by his spirit, cleansed, given a new nature so that we can do that. But the other part of grace is his power to keep the commandments to some degree. For grace is not only forgiveness, it's power. Grace, uh, there's a Spanish word that is used, especially for those who've gone through things like Corsia or third day. It's called palanca. Palanca is the lever that helps you understand God's grace, or it's the leather, the lever that gets you going. Sometimes it has to be the leather whip, but no, that's different. Grace is a force that pushes you and empowers you to at least keep it to some degree. So when you are tempted to disobey the commandments, you call upon God's grace in order to be able to withstand the temptation, the Lord, and then to go on and to do what you can to the best of the ability that God gives you by his word and spirit. That's grace. And the law does that. If, if maybe I haven't stressed this enough, but maybe you felt it enough that every time we look at one of those commandments, you're going, I need God's forgiveness and I need his power. The empowerment of the Spirit. It's the same way here when we look at the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. What we see is a commandment moves us to be people who are extravagantly generous, not simply misers. That's the contrast, I think, that the commandment is making. Usually I have the working phrase in there, but I have to apologize when I put together your, out, your outline. I forgot to cut and paste and put it in. So next week, if I remember, which is getting more and more difficult to do, as I remember, I will put it in there. And you can add to uh, last week's working phrase the word generosity. That's what God is creating us to be, a people who are extravagantly generous. That's what the passage from uh, 2 Corinthians talks about. To give, as the Macedonians, out of their poverty, to give beyond their means, overflowing in a wealth of generosity on their part, out of their abundance and joy, 
and indeed to do it knowing that they were giving up the last nickel that they had in order to do that. Most Americans, we're very cautious. I'll give, but I'm going to keep a couple dollars in my pocket. These Macedonians who had no security like we do in our country said, I'm going to give the last farthing, the last penny, the last I gave, I want for the cause and the work of God because they understood extreme generosity. How did they understand it? Well, take a look at the character of God, the portrait of God that is found in this. God is an extremely generous person. He's generous in his creation. He's generous in what he has put around us. The beauty of springtime with the flowers coming up and maybe unless you're living in Chicago and Michigan where they're expecting eight inches of snow today, around here, all the best we have is a couple inches of rain, which the ground needs in order to be able to plant the crops next month. Well, you have May, May showers bring May flowers. What do May flowers bring? Pilgrims. <laughs> I knew it was going to take a little moment for that one to sink in. But that's part of it. The creation. The beauty we have in this land of all of the natural resources. Some of which we haven't even tapped yet. And it's all out of his goodness and his generosity. And the generosity he's given to a world that is the way it is. And not only that, but the generosity he's given to humanity. He's given to you life. He sustains that life. Even in your most rebellious moments, he sustains your life. He ought to just go, that's it. Poof, you're gone. But his generosity is such that he gives you beyond. It's brought home to me this week as I was listening to a talk about Christology. And the, the, the uh, presentator gave to me, uh, gave to the whole class, the idea that in, his womb, in, in Mary's womb, Jesus was being sustained by the one whom he was sustaining. Think about that. In his divinity, he was sustaining his own mother who was sustaining him as he grew in the womb. And that goes on. God sustains you. He gives you what you need. He provides for you. Provisions, work, abilities, families, friends. I dare say he even gives you enemies in order to throw you back upon him. He sustains you because he has given to you the gift of new life by the Spirit. And think of all the benefits of, of Christ. He is the perfect image of God. We know what God is like, not because we've seen God or just from his word, but we have seen Jesus through his word. He's a full sacrifice. Hebrews passage where he talks about how he offered himself up, where we had an occupied cross in an occupied tomb that became an empty tomb, all for our behalf. He did it for us. We have the power to live in that way. He has granted to us his Holy Spirit. And I put back into the outline the 
passage I used from Ephesians last week, Ephesians 1, 19, 20, where it says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is at live at work within believers. And we think we're weak. We think we have nothing. It's that power that's at work within us. It's his. And finally, we have, he has a great retirement plan. Some of us are looking forward to that retirement plan because it seems to be getting closer and closer. <laughs> but think about it. Streets of gold, a place where there is no weeping or mourning or sin, a place of great bliss and joy and wonder. And I know when I was y'all your age, I was thinking, that's the last thing I want to look at. I got other things I want to do between now and then. But when you get into those difficult times, or the doctor says, it doesn't look good. The blood test is not great. You remember the retirement plan you have is out of his grace and out of his love. And it is spectacular. It's better than any 401c, any IRA, any nursing village, any retirement center. Even better than the villages down in Florida. That's it. And why? Because he is so generous. He gives to us the fullness of all that we need. In the outline, it's like, it's like going to a store. And all of the goods that are in the store are yours for free to take. It doesn't cost anything. It's simply his giving it to you. That's extravagant generosity. And the... the, the, the the thing that makes it so extravagant is he shouldn't give any of it to any of us because at heart we're still rebels toward him. The old nature is still at work within any one of us. But that's the way he is. So when it comes to the Eighth Commandment, he gives the prohibition. You shall not steal. That means... You're not to take anything from anyone else in any manner that's not your own. This is how I define stealing to my children and to my grandchildren. Not yours, don't touch. And when someone comes and says, they touched my toys, I look at the other, the, culprit, the uh, perpetrator and I go, not yours, don't touch. They understand that. You shall not steal. I didn't steal it. You got yours. Don't touch. And it comes through. It's basically what the commandment is saying. If it's not yours, don't touch it in any way. Of course, we're like kids. I didn't touch it. My hands, my fingers not touching it. I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Up here and in the heart, you're touching it. It's exactly the way we are. Stealing is to take anything in any manner that is not yours, that belongs to another. So I've written or listed some specific areas. One is violence, theft, robbery, 
uh, chattel slavery, the New World style, not the biblical style. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's a moving of a boundary. Everybody had their own piece of property. And if you took some of the stones of the fence and overnight you moved it around so that you got a little bit more of your prop their property, that was stealing. There are different ways in which it's done, but it's by violence. And if you've ever had somebody rob you, you know how violent it is, not only in what you've lost, but the whole expression of somebody coming into your house or holding you up with a gun and taking something that's yours. That stays with you for a long time. Secondly, subterfuge. Double standards in weights or measurements. False promises, the old bait and switch that goes on sometimes in advertising. Come into our store. We have this at cut rate price, but as soon as you get to it, oh, we sold out. If you want it, you got to get it at this price. Bait and switch. Casinos and lottery. Since you have extremely little chance of winning in either one, the house always wins at a casino. It is built that way. A lottery is you can, oh, it's only a dollar. It's only a dollar. Your opportunities of winning that $30 billion lottery is Zippo, almost Zippo. And you spend a dollar, something else. And then lotteries are also theft because they take money from the poor who really do not have the money to spend thinking, oh, I'll win the lottery and I'll get all this money. And then they don't. And the money that should have gone to get new shoes for Jimmy or food for the table is gone. Ponzi schemes. Those at the top get it, but those at the bottom keep losing. Give to get. And this is where the health, wealth, and prosperity comes in. The whole idea of seed money. And they take it from the passage I read, seed money. But notice the seed money is not to get. It is simply to give. And the whole, the whole realm is, send in your $100 and God will give you $1,000. And, and people fall for that. What they're really doing is stealing. If God wants you to give $100, I think he'll give you the $100 to give. And not with the idea of you're going to get $1,000. Fudging accounts or, or any balance sheets. Or able-bodied people who are not able to work or do not work. I'm not talking about those who are not able-bodied. You notice when you come off 35 or you, you go to certain intersections, there are people with signs. How do you know they're homeless? How do you know they're vets? There was a couple in Parkersburg when we lived near Parkersburg, West Virginia. They had a prime corner. They wouldn't let anyone take that corner. You know why? In a day, they would gather three to $500 in donations, tax-free. You do that five days a week, that's $1,500. You do that 50 days a year, you do the math. Tax-free, 
And they were perfectly able. If you can stand there for eight to ten hours and ask for money, you can do work somewhere. And yet people were giving. They were stealing from other people. And that's a passage from Second Thessalonians 3. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness and are busy at work. Are not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do your work quietly and to earn your own living. And then there's a third one of waste. That is slothfulness, wasteful spending for something, overpaying. There's a waste that comes not only with money, but wasting childhood, wasting minutes, wasting somebody else's time, wasting the gifts that God has given to you. That's all forms of stealing. Imagine, God has given you wonderful abilities, and if you don't use them, you're stealing from what God has given to you. You need grace to forgive, and then grace is a power to begin to use what God has given to you. All behind it, especially with money, is a cardinal sin of greed, the love of money. And Hebrews t reminds us, keep your life free from the love of money. Or 1 Timothy 6.10, which is grossly misapplied and misspoke. spoke. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not all evils. Although it comes close. What's the old adage? Follow the money trail. Follow the money trail. But it's a root of all kinds of evils. Greed. And in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. That was one of the original ones I was going to read. No one can serve two masters. You can either serve God or you can serve money. But you can't serve both of them. That's why the commandment says you shall not steal. The flip side of that, the prescription is to be generous and to be good stewards. Stewardship means taking care of that which has been entrusted to you. To be a judicious manager of all you've been given. Remember, everything you have, everything, has been a gift of God. Everything comes from Him. And if you don't have it, it could be there's a good reason why God doesn't want you to have it. He sees a bigger picture than you do. But what He has given to you, He says, take care of it for me. Genesis 1, he said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue and have dominion over the earth. And this not only has to do with things like Earth Day, taking care of the world around us, making sure that we don't pollute it, making sure that Cleveland and the Cayuga River never happens again where it was a river that could burn. It means, in one way or the other, taking care of the creation. Now, we may disagree on how to take care of that creation or to what extent, but it means taking care of that creation. It also means taking care of managing everything that God has given to you. And so I've 
talked about and I wrote in the outline some specific areas. One is the support of yourself and your family. And if you're single and you plan to get married or you hope to get married, your future family, the one yet to come. First Thessalonians 4, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be, ten, be dependent on no one. Planning, which is another word for it is budgeting. Thinking about how much you make, how much you can spend, how much you have to give. Not only planning for today, but planning for tomorrow and the needs that were there. John Wesley put it this way, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. Uh, you want to know grace? Grace is a reformed preacher quoting John Wesley. <laughs> but that's a great quote. Make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. That even means planning for retirement at a very young age. Well, I don't have the money. Yes, you do. God is providing you money in order to be able to do so. Early on in my ministry, I had the opportunity to opt out of Social Security. It's something they give to ministers on religious principles. Now, opting out simply meant I had to invest the money I would have given to Social Security in some way. Well, I went for security, not Social Security, security. I said, what happens if I die and I leave my wife with the children? I want something to be able to, for her to fall back on. I have a friend who opted the other way, and he put his money in, and after 45 years, you know how much money he has because of that? Astronomical. I think he's a millionaire a couple times over, simply by the money he took from, he would have paid to Social Security and invested it over those 45 years. Right now, I kick myself because I made it through all those years. <laughs> I kick myself because I didn't do that. I'm not saying, you, most of you can't get out of Social Security. It's taken out whether you want it or not. But look at ways in which you can make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. Then there's the area of supporting the kingdom of God. And I put this into, into the way of five T's. Again, those kind of short words help me remember it. One, time. Be a good steward of your time. God gives you minutes, God gives you seconds, He gives you hours, He gives you days. He, in His good grace, will give you years. Plan out how you're going to use it. Use it well. Ephesians, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Another way of translating that is redeeming the time that you have for the days of evil. 
Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. That's what you're looking at time. You know how many times we waste time? How many times in a day do you look at Facebook and your messages when you don't have to? I, I, again, I, I speak out of my own uh, example. There I am studying and reading and working, and all of a sudden I go, man, i got to see what's on Facebook. <laughs> and 5, 10, 15 minutes later, oh, that was a waste of time. <laughs> Talk to people I haven't seen for 40 years. You notice how easy it is to waste time? I'm just going to watch a little bit of TV. Three hours later... <laughs> And all that time is gone. Second, talents, the abilities and spiritual gifts that God supplies. We have, especially as Christians, all been wonderfully gifted by the Lord. He's given us abilities. And the abilities that you have, I probably don't have. I do not have a green thumb. You do not want me to repair a house. The only way I use a hammer is to knock out a wall, not put one in. I plant something, and two days later, it's dead. You all have those abilities. And you look at your gardens, you go, whoa, isn't that nice? That's an ability. And then you have spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are th something the Lord has given to you for the fullness of the body of Christ. As Paul said to Corinthians, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What I hear today in the church is, I have been given a gift for me, for my good. No, if you have a, good, a gift from God, a spiritual gift, it is for others, not yourself. In a sense, it's to humble you and to give it to somebody else. And we suffer if you don't use your spiritual gift. We all suffer. It's a weak link in the chain. And so if you're sitting on the spiritual gift that God has given to you, you're weakening the kingdom of God and you're weakening this congregation. And if that spiritual gift is stifled, we all are weak. There's a super abundance of abilities, even in the people who are here right now, that if they were all used, would make this place explode. That's what God has given to us. And you need to be using it. Third, treasure. He said, I knew you were going to get the money. Well, I always get the money. I'm a preacher. Especially when you talk about stewardship. <laughs> Treasure. We are providing for the work of the kingdom. Now the Old Testament formula was 10% a year. We call it the tithe. Old English word lost its meaning in the church in some ways. And some people say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament not only had tithes, but they had other offerings. And over a three-year period, you gave somewhere around 30% of your income to the work of Israel in the Old Testament. Even more, 
your tithe plus those special offerings. One of my favorite stories is when they were preparing to build the tabernacle out in the wilderness. And they were asking offerings from the people of God. And eventually, I think it was Moses, had to stand up and say, Stop giving! It would be wonderful some Sunday for Jason to stand up and go, Stop giving! We have too much! But you see, that was Old Testament. New Testament does not give either a percentage or a certain amount. But what it does say in Corinthians, on the first day of the week, each one of you to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And 2 Corinthians, which I read, everyone must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I have been in this business for 45 years. I've sat up front while they pass the plate. I look at people as the plate goes by. You know what I see? Ooh, I guess I better give. I have rarely, if ever, seen anyone put it in and go, Hallelujah! Wonderful! Now I'm going to be watching during the worship service. <laughs> now our, pro our issue here is we're reading the Word of God, so it's not appropriate for you to go, Hallelujah. Just give a fist pump. Okay. <laughs> but that is a cheerful giver. Somebody who is giving out of the joy that is in their heart, not reluctantly. And they're giving for not only the local means and the local congregation, but even more the worldwide mission of the church. One of the things that the church and dying churches do that shows you they're dying is they stop giving outside themselves. Well, we don't have enough to keep the heating bill. I once had a treasurer who always thought that this Sunday was the last Sunday anybody was going to give. So we never had enough money. I'm going, hold it. Next Sunday's coming. They'll put money in. And I know these people. If we told them we need money, they would give money. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. This is the last Sunday we'll ever see another nickel. I wish I had the ability to fire that treasure. I just didn't in our system. Now, in giving, we are not required to give 10%. However, that's the shadow world. That's the precursor. We live in the world of the substance of God's grace and love and the fullness of it. If they were required 10% then, I think we're required more than 10%. 10% is but the beginning of our giving. And then we add more to it. I've heard preachers and say, well, last year you gave 2%. How about giving 3%? And I look and I think, well, last year they robbed God of 8%. This year they're only going to rob God of 7%. Is that what you really want to teach your people? No, you have been given treasure. I, it may only be a dollar a week. That may be 10%. If it is, I wonder how you're living. 
You must be living in the basement of your parents and they're paying for everything. But whatever you give, give 10%. Learn that very early. And the earlier you begin to do it and reprioritize how you purchase things and how you use your money, the better it will be. Malachi 3, 16 to 12, or I put down verses 8 to 10. Will man rob God? The beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing of Malachi is God keeps asking questions of his people. And this is like the fourth or fifth question. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you... Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord God. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Again, this is used by the health, wealth, and prosperity, I think, in an illegitimate way. All that God is saying, you give what you are called to give to me. I'll make sure the rest goes to do what you need to have done. Not what you may want to have done, but what you need to have. That's what he's saying to them. The other one I like, and just to let you in, I really love the, the minor prophets, is in Haggai. They have been rebuilding the temple, and they stopped even though that's what they were commanded to do when they were sent back home. And in Haggai 1, the Lord says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider how you do things. You've sown much and harvested a little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And I love this last phrase. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Imagine that. Take out your wallet. You get paid. You put it in here, and it just right out. It's gone. He says, consider your ways. While my work is languishing, you're paneling your own houses. And in essence, that's stealing from God, from what he's given to you. And he's not pleased with it. Fourth one, truth. To be a people who learn the word of tr the truth of the word so that you can grow and mature. In other words, diligently study. And then share the truth that you've studied. We also thank God constantly for this. That when we receive the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as a word of men. But as what it really is. A word of God which is at work on, in you believers. How often do you read the scriptures? And study them? How often do you set aside time? To be understanding the deep things of God. And when you read, how deep do you go? Do you just kind of read over the surface and let it go? Or do you plummet the depths as best you can? Now, some can plummet the depths a whole lot better. They really are seeped 
deep sea divers. Some are only scuba divers, and they only go to some level. None of us should be surface swimmers. We should at least hold our, you know, take a deep breath and go right underneath as far as we can. That's learning the truth. And then sharing it with one another. How often do you share what you have learned? I get the privilege of doing it every Sunday as I learn, as I'm studying, and I, I give it to you. But also, when you're just talking with one another. I was reading Jeremiah today. Man, Jeremiah, he's a weeping prophet, but boy, is he filled with hope. He really helped the people understand what was going on. And they said, keep on it. God is going to bring you back to the land. What? We, we do a great job of sharing sports stories and scores. Do we do an equally great job of sharing what the Lord is doing with us and his word with one another? You know, when you don't do that, you are stealing from someone else a blessing that they may have. They may need to hear exactly what you heard. It's like the guy at that summit, the, the class that again opened my eyes to Jesus sustaining the one who is sustaining him. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mull that over for a long time. Finally, your testimony. To be able to tell your story with Christ and share the gospel with others. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always be being prepared to make a defense or an apology. Not being sorry for it, but to be able to speak a word about it. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. It's not going up and buttonhole someone and says, do you know Jesus? It's saying, look, I have found a Savior who is, means more to me than anything else in life, and he grants to me so much. I'd love to be able to tell you the story that I've heard. If you aren't giving your testimony, you're robbing somebody of the opportunity to hear about Jesus. Now, that's not to put a guilt trip on that you have to do it to everyone. God will bring into your life people to whom you have to share, especially somebody who is at the same place or the same kind of condition you are. Because they'll see it worked for you, it went, went through you, maybe it'll work for me. However, you have a testimony. Your testimony is not my testimony. My testimony will not reach some people. Because they'll look at me, oh, you're just, we're a middle class white guy. And that's not me. But your testimony may very well do it. And you have something to share. You know how the kingdom of God expands? By using those five. And doing it extravagantly. Being generous with those five. The last one is support of the poor and needy. You ever notice when you read through your Bible how often it mentions the poor and needy? Especially as you're going through the Old Testament and the Proverbs and the, uh, and the Psalms. How often... It says, take care of those who are poor and need. Those who are 
Certainly poor and needy, not those who are flim-flamming, those who are trying to bilk you. In the short term, it means taking care of immediate needs and difficulties. There is a wonderful number out there. You all know 911. That's the one you call when you're in trouble. You call 211. 211 moves you toward a group of people who will help somebody else for you. And they will provide food and lodging and housing or money for a motel. And they will do it because they're checking out to make sure these aren't the people that are flim-flamming and bilking people. Remember that number. You, when someone comes up to you and says, you got a, you got a buck? He says, no, I got 211. <laughs> and give it to them. You'll see whether or not they want to call 211 or whether they're just interested in the buck. That's one of it. But the long term is to aid them to be able to work, finding employment, learning good practices of life and skills. My son-in-law has a friend. They went through high school together. They went through school together. and He now works for him. This friend owns a construction company. And one of the things he does in his construction company, because he's building it on Christian principles, is he will take people who have been recently released from jail and he will bring them in. And will, he will teach them a skill in his company. And he will provide for them until they're able to provide for themselves. And he will work to help them get out of that cycle of crime. And this guy loves Jesus. That's a long-term way in which it's done. Notice, he didn't go to the government. Say, would you help my friend? No. He's a Christian who does it himself. And that's the way it was always meant to be. The church out there supporting the poor. The overall idea is extravagant generosity. And it's one of the five signs of a healthy congregation and of a healthy Christian. Greg's not here. He mentioned last week how I like to park in the parking lot over that corner. And he's, you know, even with my bad knees, well, my knees aren't bad anymore. I'm standing all this time, right? I may not stand for the singing, but I'm standing for all this time. One of the things I learned from the five practices was radical hospitality to go out of your way. I go all the way up, not halfway up an aisle when I go to Myers to park my car. Not because there aren't places earlier, but I say, maybe other people need it. May never know that I've done that, but maybe they need it more than I do. I can walk that distance. Extravagant generosity is exactly the same thing. I don't have a lot, but what I have, I can give away. And I can watch how I use what I have. There was a young man who loves books. I love books. I'm a, I'm a bibliophile. I love Bibles. Every time Crossway comes out with a new ESV Bible, I'm there looking at it and salivating and say, oh man, should I put the 40 bucks to buy this baby? And then I think, hold it. If I took those 40 bucks and put it toward a mission. Somebody will be saved. A child will have a meal tonight. A family will have a business. Forty bucks for another Bible? 
I don't need another Bible. But 40 bucks for them is it. I don't go to Starbucks. Not maybe because they don't have good coffee. I don't like Starbucks. <laughs> but the three or four bucks that I save is money that can go somewhere else and do something better than having a laca cacino or whatever they are called. <laughs> That's extravagant generosity. That is not stealing. That is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Out of their poverty, they gave to others. And they reap what they sow because they have a God who is so generous that he gives them everything they need. That is doing it, what the commandment says. You shall not steal. Let's pray. And John, I apologize. I stole moments from, from uh, this talk because I really do like to start at 1030 worship. That's the time we have. My apologies. Lord, thank you for the grace not only to be forgiven for stealing, but also the grace to help us learn how not to steal, but to be generous givers, extravagantly generous to be an example of your extravagance toward us, that it may be part of the witness that we have toward others. Help us, O oh Lord, to do what you have called us to do and give to us the grace to be able to do it for your honor, for your glory, for the advancement of the kingdom, for the sake of someone who needs to hear and respond to the gospel. For we ask it in Christ's name, the one who is our Redeemer, our Rock, our Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.